You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 27th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. It's Sunday the 27th of October. This is Monocle's House View. Today, China's Communist Party assembles for a massive display of patriotism. We'll look at why the world will be watching. Plus, how spa towns and artificial tourism factors into North Korea's international propaganda machine. And... Well, actually, I got the idea for making the book at one of the cat islands in northern Japan. And um, they're one of, like, many, there's over a dozen islands across Japan where there's actually more cat residents than there are humans. And um, I, was, I was visiting one of these places and I was like, oh, it would be so much fun to make a book on Japanese cat culture. From cats to anime, Japan offers a masterclass in how to do nation branding well. All that and the day's newspapers too. Monocle's House View starts now. Good morning and welcome to Studio One here at Midori House. I'm Georgina Godwin and I'm joined today by a monocle favourite, the former British diplomat John Everard. John, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, Now, we're going to start in China, where over 200 key figures of the Chinese Communist Party will convene tomorrow for the start of a four-day event under the Umbrella Initiative to uphold and improve the socialist system with Chinese characteristics. It's a patriotic sentiment to those at home, but perhaps a tactic of intimidation to those abroad. John, what does that mean, uphold and improve the socialist system within Chinese characteristics? It means that this, the fourth plenum of the 19th Congress of the party, is going to be devoted to what the Chinese like to call organisational issues. Uh, They are going to try to raise the the level of the party, raise its stature, uh, try to do something about the damage that its image has suffered uh, after a whole string of really horribly embarrassing corruption uh, scandals. And it's quite probable too, though we're not yet certain, that they will do something to further enhance the personal position of President Xi Jinping. Uh, In a sense, we are still uh, living with the aftershocks of the political earthquake of spring 2018. When you remember, we had two uh, plenum back to back, the second and the third uh, took place within a few weeks of each other. deliberately so that the Communist Party could get everything in place before the National People's Congress uh, that year, which took place in March. Uh, This has had various strange effects. Firstly, it's meant that this plenum, the one that's starting on Monday, uh, has had the longest gap since the last plenum of any plenum uh, anywhere in uh, in Chinese history, uh, which has caused a certain amount of excitement. It's probably due to the fact that they had two plenums together, but it's, it's uh, mm. a footnote history. The second thing is that normally the fourth plenum of any Congress is the one devoted to economic matters. It's a kind of historical nod to the fourth plenum in 1978, uh, which is when Deng Xiaoping uh, launched China's economic reform program, and it's been a kind of tradition ever since. This time, we're not doing that. We are doing, as I say, organisational matters, which I think is a sign of just how worried the party is about the challenges it faces, including all the things I mentioned, plus, of course, Hong Kong and a slowing economy. Mm, absolutely. Um, as you as you mentioned, uh, President Xi, it does seem to me that this is all about consolidating his, his position. 
Yes, consolidating his personal position and consolidating the position of the party as a whole. Uh, lots of stage whispers that uh, he has come under fierce political attack, uh, not least from the political allies of the many, many people who he has purged, uh, nominally for corruption, perhaps for other reasons too. The party position, as I said, uh, has suffered after a lot of corruption scandals uh, at this plenum. We are expecting two uh, members of the Central Committee to be replaced. Uh, one, because he jumped from a very high window and isn't around anymore. Uh, the other, uh, because he was found to be corrupt. So corruption has sort of eaten into the plenum agenda already. Uh, it's a big issue in China. And as the economy slows, as people find that they're not quite getting uh, as much money, more money each year as they had the year before, they're starting to question party legitimacy and the party needs to devise answers. Mm. Now, looking at the economy, Obviously, as you say, there's been a dip. There's the trade war with America. How is this going to be addressed? I mean, where are we now with US relations? Nobody really knows. Uh, not, I mean, the Chinese position is clear. Uh, they set it out in, in, in laborious detail on several occasions. They're not going to budge on any of the key issues, they say effectively. Uh, the big doubt, of course, is in the White House. Uh, what is uh, President Trump's master plan? Uh, the kind of inked, uh, rather pencil deal that we had a couple of weeks ago, is that going to be inked? What is actually going to mean in practice? So really a lot of question marks there, uh, which nobody is well placed to answer. On the economy more broadly, it doesn't look as if the big economic challenges are going to be addressed at this plenum. Uh, I suspect that we'll have to wait for next autumn, autumn 2020, to hear what the Communist Party plans to do about them, which is quite a long time away and things are not going to get better in the meantime. Mm. Meanwhile, of course, the uh, Belton Road initiative continues around the world, uh, particularly in Africa. And I thought it was very interesting looking at the Chinese, uh, at the Russia-Africa conference uh, that's just taken place in Moscow, where there were representatives from every single African country and I think over 40 heads of state. Russia now having a real push uh, into Africa. How much of a difference is that going to make to China? Probably not a great deal. I mean, I think the Chinese would argue that a lot of Russia's push is smoke and mirrors. Russia doesn't have a great deal to offer Africa. What Africa wants is investment capital and lots of it. And Russia's broke. Russia can't do it. China can and is. A Belt and Road Initiative, as you rightly point out, central now to Chinese foreign policy. Uh, and probably not going to be reviewed at this plenum because it's being reviewed internally. Uh, it's now been going for a while and the Chinese have started to discover that some of the things that all these um, unpleasant Westerners were telling them about aid projects in Africa were in fact true, that if you just give African governments a lot of money, it tends to vanish without anything getting built, that if you put in purely Chinese work teams uh, in to build bridges, stadiums, whatever it might be in African countries, African countries tend to chafe because they want jobs for their own people. Well, quite rightly. <laughs> well, yeah, you can understand that. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so on and so forth. There's a lot that the Chinese are learning uh, about the outside world uh, that is being digested and is probably going to mean uh, not exactly a relaunch, but a mild reformulation of Belt and Road probably early next year. Mm -hmm. uh, another issue that, that keeps coming up is uh, Huawei, which is, of course, the big tech company, uh, which has been banned in various parts of the world because of fears over surveillance. But I see that Boris Johnson uh, looks like he is going to approve 
approve uh, Huawei to uh, provide 5G here in Britain. Yes, uh, so it seems. Uh, uh, and in the teeth of fierce US resistance, I mean, the United States, uh, for technical as well as political reasons, has been lobbying everybody they can find to go slow on Huawei. And they have produced, apparently, uh, quite solid intelligence to show that Huawei, the threat from Huawei, the threat of uh, Huawei can be used to penetrate uh, information infrastructures is very real. Um, Boris Johnson hasn't explained how he has responded to this American lobbying, whether he's taken account of it or anything like that. It's a simple a blanket declaration that, yes, we go ahead. Uh, with no detail, as 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 ever. Uh, now, of course, the big thing is Hong Kong uh, and how that's going to be dealt with by China. Uh, and so far, there has been no major crackdown to to, to the extent of Tiananmen Square, for instance. Uh, do you think that's on its way? I think that as time passes and as China continues not to intervene, so the prospects of a heavy Chinese intervention start to recede. You can see I'm saying that when my fingers tight crossed. <laughs> uh, I think if China were going to intervene, they'd have probably done so by now. And I, uh, I mean, it, we know that Hong Kong is a furiously debated issue uh, within the Chinese leadership. Uh, one of the big calculations, of course, is that if you intervene in Hong Kong, effectively you you ripped up the the joint declaration uh, with the UK, and if you rip up a solemn agreement of that kind, it means that no Taiwanese government is ever going to sign a treaty with you. That you've thrown away the uh, chances of peaceful reunification of the motherland. Mm. That the only way you'd ever going to get Taiwan back uh, would be to use military force. Effectively, that would mean that Xi Jinping goes down in Chinese history as the president who lost Taiwan. And I don't think he wants to do that. And of course, I mean, Taiwan, I think, uh, we've discussed this before, could be a major flashpoint for the world. If if there was any kind of military intervention there, the US, because of its its agreements with Taiwan, would have to intervene. And you're then looking at, at, at a global conflict. Yes, that's right. It, this could go badly wrong. It's one of those flashpoints that sort of simmers in the background. Kind of flashpoint simmer? I think I'm mixing my metaphors, haven't I? Uh, <laughs> but anyway, it, it's there and is probably not analysed anything like enough. Uh, it, it, if heaven forfend, uh, it ever came to a military clash between China and Taiwan. It would reverberate politically across China. This is Chinese shooting Chinese. Mm. And that would look very, very bad. Mm. At a time when the Communist Party, as I was saying earlier, is feeling just a little bit nervous for other good reasons, uh, it would think twice, I think, before letting that on. Yeah. Uh, one lovely story we've been covering in our headlines today is that yesterday saw uh, the first and biggest gay pride march in Taiwan. Of course, Taiwan has just voted to legalise same-sex marriage. I think it's the only uh, South Asian country to do so. Uh, and uh, there was this massive sort of celebration of it. I wonder how China looks upon that. I suspect that a lot of, uh, of LGBT Chinese uh, look on it with enormous envy and just hope for the day when, who knows, there might be a, a gay pride march in the streets of Shanghai. Uh, the Chinese government uh, tends to consist of elderly men of a conservative mindset who probably are harumphing in disgust at this, uh, at this moral libertinage. Yeah, and it's unlikely to come up in the session tomorrow. I think that's a fair bet. Uh, John, thank you very much on that subject. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll be uh, talking about your uh, specialist subject, North Korea. Monocle's designed Focus November issue hits newsstands on October the 17th and there's plenty to discover. 
from all around the world. First, we venture into the Syrian capital of Damascus, where the military battle is over, but a different war continues, and meet those trying to find their way back to normality. Second, learn how bookseller James Daunt has successfully turned the UK chain Waterstones around and is now tasked with changing the fortunes of Barnes & Noble, the last remaining chain bookshop of scale in the US. Third, we take a first look at Kumanuma, a former factory turned culture centre in the suburbs of Paris, where gallerists are creating a new artistic community away from the crowds. Renovated by French architecture firm The Freaks, this space will host private galleries, an artist's residency and exhibitions. Fourth, our design-heavy issue not only features our top 20 furniture picks, we also sit down with some of the world's most talented architects, including John Paulson and Bjarke Ingels, to talk extraterrestrial infrastructure and minimalism. Monocle's November issue is available to order at monocle.com or do the wise thing and subscribe now. This is Monocle House for you. Now, North Korea's Kim Jong-un was spotted steaming himself at a spa town last week. But as you might expect, it wasn't quite what it seemed. The Yangdok Country Hot Spring Resort has been developed as a tourist destination. Now, John, you're a former British ambassador to North Korea. The country surely can't boast much of a tourism industry. So what are tourist towns like this one really for? Well, they are an attempt to attract tourists. You're quite right. Uh, you don't get that many people planning to spend their summer holes in North Korea. It doesn't have the same pull as a few other destinations. Uh, and the North Koreans are trying to change that. They have got a few aces up their sleeve. Uh, they've got lots of uh, underwater, uh, sorry, underground hot water. So potential for, for proper spas and mineral springs, which attracts some people. There's lots of places in North Korea where you can go hill walking. There's lots of mountains and not many people. And it does have beautiful beaches. So with a bit of imagination, you know, they might just be able to, to pull in at least a few more tourists. As it is, uh, tourism to North Korea is very heavily Pyongyang-centred. Uh, if you sign up for a tour, you tend to spend uh, about several days of it uh, in Pyongyang with probably a couple of visits to North Korean provincial cities and a lot of North Korea's other tourist assets are simply not being used. Mm. How much freedom then would a tourist have? Can you just go to North Korea and do what you like? Oh, dream on. <laughs> uh, if you go on an official tour, you are escorted and watched and you do not you know, get into unauthorised conversation with North Koreas. You do not go to places that your official guides don't want you to go to. But there are grey areas. Uh, for example, uh, just north of Wonsan, on the uh, the east coast of North Korea, there's an, an international children's camp uh, where you can send your kids for their summer holidays, uh, <laughs> which people do, I mean, especially from Eastern Europe. Uh, and there, you know, the, the kids are allowed pretty much to run riot. Uh, I mean, the nice beaches and there are some mountains to go and climb. And they tend to have actually quite a good time. So a lot more freedom there. You do have to be under 16 for it, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kim uh, also used this photo opportunity to criticise South Korea. Now, he's recently uh, ordered the demolition of a tourism town that had been partly funded by Seoul. Uh, are these towns just uh, elaborate symbols of 
diplomacy? No. Uh, Kongangsan, where he, he went to make this great announcement, is more than just a symbol. Uh, it is one of the most beautiful mountains on the Korean peninsula, you know, close to the hearts of all Koreans, north and south. And South Koreans fretted that they could no longer climb it. And so as part of the great sunshine policy uh, of a few years ago, when north-south relations were much better than they are now, it was agreed that not the South Korean government, but the South Korean company of Hyundai Asan uh, could build a complex there to allow South Korean tourists to come and walk around the trails and take selfies and do things that South Koreans like to do. And for a long time, this worked very well, until in a tragic accident, um, a North Korean guard shot dead a South Korean woman tourist. And the whole scheme shuddered to a halt. Now, Kim Jong-un's recent visit is more than anything to do with the slow chilling of relations between North and South Korea. He's sulking that he hasn't got anywhere with the United States. I mean, famously, the diplomatic process doesn't seem to have got very far. And he's partly blaming South Korea. He's also making clear that now he's talking to President Trump, he has no further interest in talking to that little squirt, uh, mm. President Moon of South Korea. Uh, and he's signaling this uh, by slowly taking apart items of cooperation. Uh, the and most recently, as you say, including uh, ordering the demolition of the South Korean-built hotels in Kongangsan. In fairness to Kim Jong-un, he's right. They are tacky. I mean, the hotels in Kongangsan do look rather like the amenity centres that you tend to get on low-cost housing estates in the UK. Uh, you wouldn't want to go and stay there if you had any other choice. But of course, Hyundai Asan knew that you didn't. Hmm. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about nation branding because phrases like I love New York have become part of a, a nation's or a city's identity. Uh, there are often less obvious ingredients in a brand's master recipe. For example, in the case of Japan, there are cats. Now, I know you're a bit of a cat person, John. Uh, Manami Okazaki is the author of Land of the Rising Cat. It's a beautifully illustrated... New, you're not laughing, are you, John? It's a beautifully <laughs> illustrated new book that explores the nation's affection for felines. Well, she told Monocle's Ben Ryland how she first pounced upon the idea. <laughs> well, actually, I got the idea for making the book at one of the cat islands in northern Japan. And they're one of, like, many, there's over a dozen islands across Japan where there's actually more cat residents than there are humans. And I was visiting one of these places and I was like, oh, it'd be so much fun to make a book on Japanese cat culture. And pretty much ever since then, I've been completely bamboozled with material like even if you went to Japan and you put a filter on and you were like I'm only going to see cat related material you'd pretty much get like you know the biggest literary giants like manga artists artisans pretty much across the board like any kinds of cultural manifestation you can think of there's some kind of like cat related thing you can have you can check out your book is such a beautiful introduction to that kind of world reminded of a documentary that came out a couple of years ago called Keddy, which was all about cat culture in istanbul which again was something completely different and it was all about how the cats have this uh a different relationship with the city and therefore the residents of the city relate to the cats in a completely different way and they play a much more important role in people's daily lives what is it actually like in japan well, I think generally when people think of kind of cat trends, they might think of something like Grumpy Cat or like internet memes and things like that, like something very contemporary and something related to millennial culture and things like that, social media. Whereas I think in Japan, there's such a long history of like cat related culture and especially culturally, you can see so many different representations of cats, like going back like throughout the centuries. And I think 
it's because it isn't so much a trend. There is like such a historical kind of precedent. And another huge thing about Japan's cat culture is that it's very much related to spirituality and religion. And one of the most prosaic reasons is because the cats were brought to Japan in the 6th century from China to protect the Buddhist sutras from mice on ships. So there's this kind of like very strong link between Buddhism, the entrance of Buddhism into Japan, and cats. What were some of the discoveries that you made along the way? I mean, I imagine that, that getting into this rather unusual world, it must be said, must have surprised you along the way as well. I mean, the biggest surprise was the different guises, like the different kind of manifestations in terms of like... It doesn't matter what facet of culture you're looking at, like from manga to anime to like novelists to like pretty much you name it. There's some kind of like cat representation. But I think the biggest surprise was like how popular cat culture is at the moment and very much rooted to demographic changes as well. So Japan has an aging population and a lot of the elderly are getting cats and things like that. And at the moment, there's actually more like pets, more cats and dogs than there are children. I think that was like really surprising to see how much cats have kind of overtaken children as, you know, even surrogate like children in the roles of families as well. That's really interesting. I mean, we could be looking at a future where Japan is really the country of cats. Maybe people are in danger. It could be like Planet of the Apes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It might be happening. I mean, if you go to the cat islands, like there's islands where there's only, you know, two dozen or so residents and then there's hundreds of cats. So that could actually be the future of Japan, like the Isle of Dogs, but with cat residents instead. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds all right to me. There is something about this that's visual as well. It must be said that your book is beautifully visual. It it really takes you on a journey into some strange but very beautiful cat worlds. Is there something uniquely visual about the domestic cat, the pet cat, I feel like there's something easy to relate to. There's something human-esque about the way cats express themselves and relate to us. I think one of the reasons that, for example, like Japan does have a very strong dog culture as well. There's like, you know, very famous dogs like the Akita breed and the Shiba Inu that also Monocle uses in your um, branding. But in terms of cats, like creators tend to really love them. And one of the reasons is because a lot of creative people own them. And if they're working on very long-form stories, like, for example, like manga artists or novelists, they tend to keep cats. And for these kinds of people, they could be working on you know stories for weeks and the only kind of living thing that they see can be very, very solitary. The only living thing they see is a cat. And it's quite natural that these kinds of things enter into their creative works as well. So, But for these kinds of creative people, for example, with a dog, they're normally represented in a way that's very one-dimensional, like just loyal or like sweet, whereas a cat can be quite shifty or nefarious or like multi-dimensional. And I think these kinds of like dualities are quite interesting for creators on the whole anyway. So I think it's the fact that when you look at a cat, like they're quite elegant and they're quite cute, but you don't actually really know what they're thinking. They can be quite independent. They can look quite shady as well. So I think one of the interesting things about cats for creators is the fact that you can represent them as something super cute or something really horrific as well. But I think it's just the fact that it has such a long history. Like if you go back to like Heian era literature, there's cats, you know, Taisho era illustrators, like Edo era woodblock prints. There's always been cats manifested in all these different kinds of eras. And I think it's just because it's had such a long history. Manami Okazaki speaking to Monocle's Ben Rylan. Her beautiful book, Land of the Rising Cat, is out now. It's published by Prestel. You're listening to the Sunday Monocle House View. I'm Georgina Godwin. John Everard, the former British diplomat, is still with me. John, could a cat ever convince you to pay a visit to Japan? 
I don't need convincing papers in Japan. There's a great place, and I'd happily go there. It's all cut and no cut. But as you say, I, I am a, a, a great, if <laughs> recently bereaved. I'm so uh, sorry. Your cat died. Yes, my, 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 my cat died. I was, I was completely bonded to that cat. I'm, I'm, I'm still grieving him. But yes, I'm a, I'm a great cat lover, and uh, I, 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 I do enjoy sort of discovering cats in my various travels. Mm. So, of course, I mean, this, this whole, that whole piece really is about soft power, or, or furry power, maybe. <laughs> yes, poor power. <laughs> uh, what are some of your favourite examples of soft power and perhaps less obvious nation branding? I mean, you've got that in Japan, but I'm also thinking perhaps of Australia, which has been going to great effort to quietly pitch itself as the world's new food capital and indeed coffee capital too. Yes, that's right. And we've got sort of the Swiss, you know, where mountains only exist in Switzerland. Uh, and if you want to sort of get away from it all, you go to Iceland. Two quite successful examples of, of branding. One of my favourites was a conscious attempt at national branding by Uruguay, whereas, you know, I was ambassador for a while. Uruguay decided they needed a national brand. And very Uruguay, this reformed committee, the, the National Branding Committee, uh, to work out what this was going to be. And they came up with the idea that Uruguay's unique selling strength was that it was almost empty. So you can get back to nature. And the brand was going to be Uruguay for nature, natural Uruguay. And they felt very proud of this. They went to an international tourism uh, conference elsewhere, I think it was held in Quito in South America, and discovered the horror that everybody else on the continent had come up with exactly the same <laughs> idea. So they had to go back and, and rethink completely. I felt rather sorry for them. I thought it was, it was a generally good idea. I've only been to Uruguay once, and it was uh, just for lunch. Fact, oh, right. Yes. In, a, in, a, in a restaurant that had been made out of a railway carriage. Um, I know the restaurant, yes. yes. No, you it's get just good over food the border, isn't it? From, just over from, the border. That's from, the one, yeah. yes. No, you, you get good food in you Uruguay. Do. There's lots to recommend the place. Um, but interrupting this, this broadcast on behalf of the Uruguay Tourism Board, uh, the, my second favourite is samba in Brazil. Which of course, you, know, you think of Brazil, you think of carnival, uh, and, and you think of samba. The, the reason that I love this is because I, I, most of my Brazilian friends uh, tend to be sort of slightly upper crust and, and rather conservative, and they hate samba. And if you mention sort of samba with a big smile as, as sam, Brazil equals samba, they sort of curl up and glare at you. I mean, all this <laughs> gyrating on the streets in, in scanty dress. I mean, it's quite quite immoral and quite wrong. Just not Brasileiro. You shouldn't be doing this kind of thing. <laughs> Nevertheless, they're stuck with it. You no, know, samba does equal Brazil. Absolutely. John, we don't have a lot of time left, but I'd like to have a very quick look at the newspapers and particularly one story that's been dominating the news uh, this month, which is the fact that uh, Francesco Franco, the, the Spanish uh, dictator, was exhumed from where he'd lain in the state monument, the Valley of the Fallen, since his death in 1975. So his remains were reburied privately. Um, this was a very, very big story, not only in Spain, but reverberated around the world. Yes, quite right. And rightly so. Uh, I, I mean, I remember Spain under Franco, uh, the... Uh, I'm sure my age now, aren't I? Uh, <laughs> but the, you know, the, the, the general repression, the, the fear of speaking, Spaniards would give you lists in their car, just drive around town just so you could talk to a foreigner. It was a very, very strange place. And his exhumation and his, the removal of his remains to a, a family crypt, it seemed to me to be an important step in moving the Spanish Civil War from a kind of mythology into history, that Franco actually wasn't a hero. He was militarily incompetent. It's not that he won the war, it's that the Republic, who were even more incompetent, succeeded in losing it against all the odds. And I'm rather hoping that this act starts a, a reassessment of that war and what happened after, in the cold and often painful light of history, that despite Laurie Lee, uh, despite George Orwell, 
we have to accept there wasn't a great deal of heroism, that it was a nasty, vicious war where neither side covered themselves with glory and that what happened afterwards was even worse. A dark chapter in Spain's history that desperately needs a spotlight on it. Mm, I mean, and half a million people died and, of course, some of those bodies not even found to, to this day. Mm. Um, so I, I just wonder, looking at that and the fact that he's been moved, he's no, he still could be in a place where people... It could be a magnet for, for fashion really, to, to, to come and worship. And I, I, I think that this is part of what we're seeing right across Europe, this rise of populism and people like Franco still being revered. Yes, that's right. And this was one of the worries of, of the authorities before they authorised the exhumation. Um, one of the arguments against the exhumation was that the Valley of the Fallen is quite a long way outside Madrid. It's about 50 kilometres. It's fairly remote. Uh, whereas if you move Franco's remains into near central Madrid, it actually makes it easier for neo-fascists to come to the tomb. Uh, this was a, uh, This remains a risk, but clearly one they decided they're going to take. I don't know whether they're going to put special security around the crypt. I suspect they will, but they haven't made an announcement on this yet. Mm, mm, very, very interesting. And I wonder uh, what that means for changing attitudes in Spain. Yes, uh, changing attitudes and bringing up attitudes from the past. It's a cathartic moment, I think, for many and a difficult moment for others. I mean, the Civil War uh, is a long, long time ago now. Uh, interestingly, of course, the 80th anniversary in March this year, I saw no commemorations, did you? No. I mean, it's all passed in mm. silence. The world's forgotten that war. Uh, Franco uh, died in 75, not quite a long ago, but still a long time ago. And Spain has changed. Spanish attitudes have changed and the way that Spaniards operate between themselves has changed. You used to get a lot of references to the two Spains. Let's hope that that now wraps up and we go back to one Spain. Absolutely. And we're seeing these huge demonstrations, aren't we, in Barcelona. I mean, that's a, another story and one that I expect we'll be exploring in The Globalist. Um, I'll be back uh, talking about that on Monday morning. John Everard, thank you very much for being with us. And uh, that's all for this programme for today. Our supervising producer was Ben Ryland. Our researcher was Naomi Potter. Our studio manager was Louis Allen. Uh, I'm Georgina Godwin. The Sunday weekend edition continues after this. Lots of great programming coming your way. Uh, And of course, meet the writers coming up. That's at 1400 London time. Howard Jacobson, who's been nominated for the Booker Prize three times. He's won it once, won many other prizes, uh, is uh, talking to me about his comedy novels and his most recent 16th book it's called live a little it's all about non-agenarian love there might be hope for all of us still i'm georgina godwin thank you for listening